All right, a brief word before we get started. This brief word is to ask you for your help. So in 2014, Ascension began producing digital content with which you are familiar. So YouTube videos and podcasts and articles. And since then, it's only ramped up. The purpose of this content is to help you grow in your faith and to give you resources to help others do the same. Uh, so it's like every week there are 18 videos and podcasts released, which are a kind of expose of the truth, the goodness, the beauty of God and of his church and of his sacraments and of all those things that he puts at our disposition to grow in the knowledge and love of him. So while this content is free to consume, it is not free to make. So we're asking you to consider making a financial gift to help offset some of the costs of production associated with you know, Ascension Presents YouTube channel and Bible in a Year, this podcast, other things besides. So if you or someone you know has benefited personally from Ascension's work, please consider making a gift. Any amount is truly appreciated and will go towards production costs and all that's associated with that. So to make a gift, please visit ascensionpress.com support or click the link in the description. Again, that is ascensionpress.com support. I feel like the cantor at the beginning of Mass. Welcome. Today is the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Our celebrant is Father Gregory, and you can find your opening hymn at 876. Again, that's 876. No, it's ascensionpress.com slash support. So whether you're able to support uh, the work financially or not, please keep the entire Ascension team in your prayers as they continue to do the work of God. And as, yeah, things just keep going further up and further in to the glory that awaits us all. All right, prayers for you. Please pray for us. Cheers. Hi, I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And I'm Father Gregory Pine. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our prayer lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Spiritual reading can be challenging for many Catholics, so this podcast is here to help. Each season, we'll read through a great work, unpack its timeless wisdom, and encourage you with practical tips for the pursuit of holiness. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we're reading Ascension's edition of Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. To get your copy of the book and download the reading plan for this season, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text intro to 33777. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. This is day 31. Today, we'll be reading part three, Certain Counsels for the Practice of the Virtues, chapter 39, pages 349 through 353 in the Ascension edition of the book. Before we get into the reading, let's take a quick look at what we'll be covering today. In the last chapter yesterday, St. Francis offered advice to married couples. We talked about the sanctity of marriage and the way by which marriage leads men and women to holiness through devotion. In this chapter, St. Francis considers what he calls the sanctity of the marriage bed. Here, St. Francis wants us to consider how our human sexuality contributes to our growth in devotion and holiness. So that's what we'll do. Before turning to the reading, let's say a prayer. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly. For the praise and glory of thy name. Amen. Chapter 39 on the holiness of the marriage bed. 
The marriage bed must remain undefiled, as the apostle says. In other words, it must remain free of all impurity and other profanities. Thus, holy matrimony was first instituted in the earthly paradise, where concupiscence never exercised its unruly control, and nothing lacking in uprightness was known to exist. There is a kind of likeness between sexual pleasures and those of eating, for both of them are concerned with matters of the flesh, although the former are called carnal on account of their great vehemence. Therefore, I will explain what I can say about the one by what can be said about the other. 1. The purpose of eating is the preservation of life. Now, just as simply eating in order to nourish and preserve one's life is a good thing, something holy and commanded by God, so too what is required in marriage for the beginning of children and the multiplying of people upon earth is something good and holy, for it is the principal end of marriage. 2. To eat not merely to preserve one's life, but to preserve the mutual communion and condescension that we owe to one another, is something very just and morally befitting. So too the legitimate and reciprocal satisfaction of those joined in sacred matrimony is called a duty by St. Paul, though such a great duty that he does not wish for either party to be exempted from it without the free and voluntary consent of the other party, not even for exercises in devotion, which is why I wrote what I said in the chapter on Holy Communion in this regard. How much less can one exempt oneself from it for fickle pretenses of virtue or out of anger or disdain? 3. Just as those who eat to fulfill the duty of having mutual communion must eat freely, and not as though they were being forced to do so, likewise, finding a way to acknowledge the fact that they are hungry, so too the nuptial duty must always be rendered faithfully and candidly, as though it were always filled with the hope that children would come along, even if for some reason there were no such hope. 4. Now, when someone does not eat for the first two reasons, but rather merely to satisfy one's appetite, this is permissible, though not, however, praiseworthy. For the mere pleasure of sensual appetite cannot suffice to make an action praiseworthy, though it suffices if the pleasure is permissible. 5. However, to eat not merely because of one's appetite, but excessively, and in a way that is unmeasured, is more or less blameworthy a thing depending upon how great the excess is. Six. Now, excess in eating does not consist only in greatness of quantity, but also in the way that one eats. Thus, my dear Philothea, we have the revealing case of how honey, which is so proper and healthful for bees, can nonetheless become so harmful for them that it makes them sick as when they eat too much of it in the spring, overfilling their stomachs and sometimes causing them to die, with their head or midsection swelling. In truth, Nuptial intercourse, which is so holy, just, and commendable, something so useful to the very life of political society itself, can nonetheless be, in certain cases, dangerous for those who partake in it, for sometimes it makes their souls very sick with venial sin, as happens through mere excess, and sometimes causes them to die through mortal sin, as happens when the order established for the beginning of children is violated and perverted. In this case, depending on how greatly one strays from this order, one sins more or less greatly, though always mortally. For insofar as the procreation of children is the first and principal end of marriage, one can never virtuously depart from the order that it requires, even if for some reason it cannot otherwise be carried out, as happens when sterility or current pregnancy prevents the beginning of children. In such cases, bodily intercourse does not fail to be just and holy, provided the rules of begetting are followed. For no change of circumstances can ever permissibly allow for the breaching of the law imposed by the principal end of marriage. 
Certainly, the infamous and atrocious deed committed by Onan was detestable before the eyes of God, as is said in Genesis. And although some heretics today, a hundred times more blasphemous than the cynics spoken of by St. Jerome in his commentary on the Ephesians, have wished to say that what displeased God was this wicked man's perverse intention, Scripture, however, speaks otherwise, and assures us in particular that the very thing that he did was detestable and abominable before the eyes of God. 7. It is a true mark of a foul, vile, abject, and disgraceful mind to think of meat and food before the time of eating, even more so when after eating one amuses oneself at the pleasure one took in eating, talking and thinking about it, wallowing in one's own memory of the pleasure taken in swallowing such morsels, like those who before dinner place their mind upon the spit, and afterwards let it remain upon the dishes. They are men who are worthy of being kitchen filth, who, as St. Paul observes, make their stomachs into their gods. Honorable men think about the dinner table only when they sit down, and after the meal they wash their hands and mouths in order to ensure that neither the taste nor the smell of what they had eaten remains. The elephant is only a large beast, though it is the best that lives upon the earth, and has the keenest senses. Let me tell you about one aspect of his uprightness. He never goes about looking for a new female mate, and tenderly loves the one that he has chosen, with whom he nonetheless partners only every three years, and this is only for five days, and so secretly that he is never seen in this act. However, he is indeed seen on the sixth day, when before everything else he goes straight to some river where he washes his whole body, not wishing to return to the herd until first purifying himself. Consider thus the beautiful and upright instincts that motivate such an animal, which thereby invites married men and women not to remain attached to the sexual indulgences that they have exercised in accord with their vocation, but rather to wash their hearts and affections of them and to purify themselves of them as soon as possible, so that they might thereafter practice other purer and more elevated actions with freedom of spirit. This advice is meant to express how to perfectly practice the excellent doctrine given by St. Paul to the Corinthians. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. For in the words of St. Gregory the Great, someone lives with a wife as though he did not have one precisely, by taking bodily consolations with her, without them turning him away from spiritual aspirations. And what is said for husbands also extends to wives as well. That those who deal with the world act as though they had no dealings with it, says St. Paul. Therefore let all make use of the world, each in accord with his particular vocation, but doing so in such a way that one does not become attached to it, so that one would remain as free and prompt in God's service as one would have remained if one had not used it at all. The great evil committed by man, says St. Augustine, is to wish to take joy in the things that he should only use and want to use those things that he should only take joy in. We should take joy in spiritual things and only use bodily ones. But when we convert use into enjoyment, our rational soul also undergoes a kind of conversion, becoming brutal and bestial. I believe that I have said all that I wish to say on this topic and have made known without directly saying it what I do not wish to put into words. So this chapter really kind of follows yesterday's chapter and, and episode, um, continuing to consider the way by which the vocation of marriage contributes to a life of devotion. As we talked about yesterday, this is, an I, I, I would say, an important topic or area of discussion for St. Francis because the whole of his book on devotion is, or one of the like foundational principles that we've talked about is that 
a life of devotion, holiness is not reserved for like the the ecclesial elite, but is he's writing so that people in everyday life might be able to pursue Christ and know Christ and have intimacy with Christ and these sort of things. So I guess advice to to married couples is is sort of the like the bread and butter of what St. Francis is is talking about. So yesterday we talked about the sort of the reality of marriage and today kind of the the reality of human sexuality within particularly within the context of marriage, but more broadly speaking, human sexuality. So this is often um, I don't know, an interesting topic at least in the public world, about what the church teaches about sex and sexuality and these sort of things. So why don't we start by kind of kind of giving, I don't know, a general overview of human sexuality, if, you know, in like a, a minute. Can we do that? Is that a possibility, Father Gregory? I don't know. We're going to try. You're going to try. Yeah, let's you're laughing, so you're going to try. All right. So those, those of you who have been following Ascension Press for some time now have probably seen some of the theology of the body materials that have come out in the past two decades. So it's a teaching, you know, based on the uh, Wednesday audiences of St. John Paul II, given from 1979 to 1984, which highlight the fact of man and woman being made for sexual intimacy, sexual union in the context of marriage, and that this is part of God's original plan, and it's part of what it means to be made to the image of God. So, you know, throughout the history of the church, there are a lot of debates, a lot of discussions concerning human sexuality and whether it has, yeah, like a legitimate role in our flourishing. And so we're Dominicans in the 13th century. There was a heresy abroad called the Albigensian heresy or the Cathar heresy. And the heretics were really down on the material world. So they're like, the incarnation probably didn't happen. The sacraments, not so good. Marriage, certainly bad. Bringing more kids into the world. Are you kidding me? Right. And in answer to that, St. Dominic assembled a band of preaching friars to confront what he saw as like the kind of some of terrible um, kind of like esoteric and heretical teachings of the time. Um, so it's, it's something that's near and dear to us to vindicate or to kind of defend the sanctity of marriage and of sexual intercourse as part and parcel of that. So yeah, is that an introduction to human sexuality in one minute? Not a chance in the world. Uh, was it ever possible? Probably not, but I wasn't going to try either. Back to you, Father Jacob Bertrand. Mm. <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> wow. Uh, what can you do though? That was, it, was a, it was a tough task. Uh, C plus, C's get degrees, so good job. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I think one of the important things when we talk about a life, when as we're talking about a life of devotion and building habits and virtues, um, is that that that's on offer in, in with respect to our human sexuality. Particularly here, we think of the virtues of of chastity and purity. I th and, and one thing that I kind of want to knock out of our minds at the beginning here is I think a, a wide held belief, even if it's sort of subconsciously held that, that human sexuality, that, that the church wants to, or proposes a sort of suppression of human sexuality, that we need to suppress these urges and these desires because they're bad or because they're not quite as good as they should be. When really the reality of, of what's being proposed is that that's, that's not true. There are things that traditionally we would call disordered in our human sexuality that we might be, yeah, I just kind of, we've, we talked about food and drink before and um, just kind of, we might be driven by our passions or our desires for sex in an inordinate way. And we could just say that's disordered from the end of, 
of what our human sexuality is made from. But in reality, that what, what grace offers, what a life of devotion offers, and what building these habits offer, is it transforms, just like our other abilities and powers, it transforms our human sexuality such that it can exist and we can live in accord with what it means to love another in a charitable and whole way, such that our human sexuality is conducive and, and contributive, right? It offers contributive services to our pursuit of holiness. Essentially, bottom line here is that aided by grace and the virtues in the life of devotion, our sexuality actually helps us become saints. And that's a pretty profound thing, that, that who we are as men and women embodied, you know, we all have our human sexuality, that becomes part of what is holy in us. So perhaps a couple words on the virtue of chastity and then a couple words on how that contributes, you know, on how sexuality then, particularly in the context of marriage, of living out our sexuality, your sexuality in the context of marriage contributes to holiness. So virtue of chastity, we've talked about the virtues. St. Francis doesn't talk about it as explicitly here, but I think it's worth our putting forth the tool, uh, you know, of the virtue here for us to consider. So thoughts, Father Gregory. Yes. So like in that same theology of the body teaching, which is, you know, the fruit of the church's tradition and uh, St. John Paul II is reading a lot of St. Thomas Aquinas in the process. Uh, you know, before the fall, we would have found it a lot easier to live to the image of God, right? So to seek the knowledge and love of God as a kind of life pursuit. Uh, but by virtue of that original sin, we lose an order or what the tradition calls a rectitude, which would have made it easy for us to sort out among different objects of desire or aspiration. And now we find them all just kind of mixed up and jumbled. And uh, we're kind of figuring it out on the fly, oftentimes with the admixture of a lot of selfishness or confusion, ignorance, even malice, etc. So in the garden, man and woman were made for each other. Right. So, you know, in this process where in the second creation account, Adam goes and names all of these different creatures. Some biblical scholars will say that he, he names them so as to distinguish them from himself. And he recognizes that none of them are quite like him. And so he turns to the Lord in search and the Lord provides for him a helpmate so that man and woman are made towards each other. And in being towards each other, they're towards God. But by virtue of the fall, that relationship is perverted, right? It's undermined by loss of this virtue of chastity. And so now it's a perennial temptation, you know, for the man to use the woman and for the woman to manipulate the man to kind of fall into gender stereotypes there, uh, if you will permit it for a second. But that by growth in the virtue of chastity, we're able to recover something of God's original plan and purpose, and even to go beyond it. So to transcend certain of its limitations. Uh, so basically, by chastity, our lower desires for food, for drink, for sexual intercourse, specifically sexual intercourse in this case, are reintegrated into a framework or a hierarchy in which, like we've said previous episodes, we affirm what is highest with like the kind of due recognition, um, with the due worship in the case of God, and then everything else kind of gets situated accordingly in its proper place. So we aim to call each thing by its proper name and then to move kind of in coordination with those things or to desire after those things in a way that's, uh, that's healthy, that's holy, that's ultimately ordained to God's glory and our salvation. So basically the virtue of chastity, regardless of whether you're a widow or a married person or preparing for marriage or a priest or religious or whatever, is meant to integrate the sexual desire so that it fits within this whole kind of complex of desires, all of which are ultimately to be trained 
on the knowledge and love of God. Yeah, and I think as like I was accused once of rhyming too much when I talk, but here there there's a a sort of thing that comes to mind that that chastity, as I've already said, you know, living chastity is not suppression of our desires, but actually the proper expression of our desires, of our sexual desires. It, as Father Gregory said, it, it reorients and puts into proper order our desires, our expression of those desires, such that we might love well. And it's this loving well in the context of marriage that St. Francis is talking about when he's talking about, you know, the, the sanctity of the marriage bed, that in the context of marriage, husband and wife are called, you know, live chastely by engaging in sexual intercourse, by having sex. This is, you know, whereas a single person doesn't, you know, this is, the chastity is directed towards one's particular state in life. So why, why then, you know, contrary to like those Albigensian heretics that you mentioned at the beginning that would be against marriage, would be against sex, these sort of things, why then, or how does sex, how is sex involved with like sanctity? How, where does that fit? Yeah. So um, that's a great question. It means that we kind of have to get over our stuffy puritanical hangups in the describing of it while not going towards a kind of excess where we make sexual intercourse sound like something sublime and mystical in every instance. Um, the advice that St. Francis de Sales gives is, you know, super sound and it's also super modest in the sense that he's saying like, okay, you know, you got lots of desires and it's hard to manage those desires, all right? But part of the simplicity of the life of married persons is that you're given to each other, not merely for the satisfaction of those desires as if you were to use each other, but to attend to each other's desires. It's just like, hey, you know, there are many reasons for which a man and a woman might come together in sexual intercourse. Ultimately, it's for the procreation and education of children, uh, but they're not just, you know, like seeking in every sexual act to conceive a child. I mean, they're, they're open to that prospect in their, in their sexual intimacy, but they're, you know, it's, it's good to have sexual intercourse in non-fertile periods. Uh, because like we said in the last episode, marriage is also for the upbuilding of that bond, of that friendship, what's sometimes described as the mutual support of the spouses. And so St. Francis kind of starts there. Um, and it's in this sense that you hear the marriage debt described, which he uh, touches on in these chapters which some people will find uncomfortable insofar as it sounds like a kind of bond servitude. But you think about it more as like a kind of attentiveness to, yeah, the states and needs of your spouse in both directions. I read a book called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. And the man and the woman in that book, they sought to share in such a profound way that they couldn't be split apart by any shadow of division. So they said, we bind our hearts together by a thousand sharings. Uh, so whenever one of them uh, like took up a hobby or a practice, the other would seek to do so as well. So that way they could share the experience. And they got to a point where they were, you know, in such close communion that if she but looked at the mantelpiece, he knew that, you know, she wanted a little mood lighting for their evening soiree and would go and light the candles because they were just firing on all cylinders. So sexual life, insofar as it's you know, generative life. It's the very power to beget, you know, children, upbuild the family, contribute to the growing of the church and its saints is a, you know, it's, it's a magnificent part of each human capacity, but it's one of those things that we can't do together. And so God throws us in together so that in sacrificing for each other and loving each other in the context of that sacrament, that the church, which is a communion, might be built up by this communion, right? So that the, the domestic church, which is to say the family, would conduce to the growth of holiness of the church 
more broadly, more generally. So I think it's, you know, when you're situated in that conversation, it sounds a little less strange and just like, yeah, a little more great. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I think like often we're probably used to hearing in some ways the sanctity of marriage, right? But the sanctity of the marriage bed might be a different way of thinking about this part of, of marriage, of the sexual physical relationship that's not divorced from the spiritual, of course, but that part of the relationship. But it's good for us to hear and to think about how our human sexuality contributes to our holiness, especially in the marriage bond. So yeah, I think a final takeaway note here is just to reiterate what we've already put forth today, is that we are made body and soul, you know, men and women, we, we're not just spiritual beings. And because of our embodiedness, or not because of it, but through it, God desires to to sanctify all that we are, soul and body. And part of how that is done includes our sexual desires and the sanctity of the marriage bed for those who are married and all the rest. So yeah, continue to pray for the virtue of chastity in, uh, in your own lives and for other people. Continue, you know, it might be worth praying for married couples, especially for engaged couples preparing to be married that they might, you know, enter and approach the sacrament um, with a great reverence, but also a great openness to the grace that our Lord wants to offer to draw them into him through life of devotion. So there you have it for today. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To download the reading plan and support the production of the podcast, please visit ascensionpress.com slash Catholic Classics. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm -hmm.